Looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. This is what the word of the Lord says. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no foolish, uh, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a part of the early church, the, the, the church that was in, described in the book of Acts, you know, the very, like the purest DNA of what the church was. I mean, I think I get this idea that, that it would have been easier to follow Jesus if I was one of those Christians that was described in the book of Acts. Because it seems like the world is slowly digressing, right? Well, as I read the scriptures, it sure doesn't seem that way. And the reason why we see that is because we see that sin is very prevalent from the outset of the church's inception. And it's, it's, it's interesting what we see today in the book of Ephesians, that these Ephesian Christians were dealing with sexual immorality and greed particularly. These are the sins that they are dealing with. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, look, this is the, this is the life of darkness that is kind of living inside of this. But I want you to, to step into the light that you already has, has a... You, you have been made into light. I love what he says there. This is your identity. This isn't something you have to try to walk in. This is your identity in Christ. You are light now. You know, as far as sexual immorality and greed, these are just Ephesian sins, right? I mean, people in America don't deal with these types of sins, right? Absolutely wrong. We deal with these types of things every day. If we were to think about maybe some of the sin that uh, we as Americans are most tempted to act upon, these would probably be high on the list. And in fact, I want to I encourage you today to think maybe about something that I hope that you've thought about before. I want to I encourage you to think about maybe what sin that you're tempted to kind of lean toward. I think there's great wisdom in knowing our hearts, knowing what we're tempted, what entices our souls, what the, the enemy uses to take us away from God. I want you to think about those types of things. In 8500, uh, Augustine wrote this in Confessions. How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? So there's this benefit from knowing yourself. A thousand years later, John Calvin says this in 1530. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. You see, in our pursuit of becoming like Jesus, there's great wisdom in asking the Spirit of God to search our hearts and to ask ourselves the question, what sin am I most tempted, what am I drawn toward? Because 
In doing that, we can find great freedom in seeing the enemy's attempts to try to entice us to sin. Now, if you look under your chair right now, there's actually a note card and a pen. And what, what we're going to do is you're actually going to write down the sin that you're most tempted to. Uh, I'm totally kidding, guys. Totally kidding. So like, you guys are like, oh, man, what's going on? Some of you are like looking for the pen and the paper. Others, you're like, what is he doing? I mean, it was just it was a great moment for me to see you doing that. My best guess is for all of us, some type of sexual immorality uh, would probably rank up on that list. And so we're going to take some time today and not just pass over this because this is uh, something that we are dealing with in our culture. And I think it, it, it would be beneficial for us to spend some time here. This is why in 2008, so that's seven years ago, a magazine headlined an article that says this, why sex gets better once you get engaged. You see, our culture has been drifting and drifting and drifting. The, the idea of what marriage is has been drifting and drifting and drifting. And so it's very important to look at what the Bible prescribes as biblical in our sexuality. Uh, I want to read again Ephesians 5, 3 through 4 as we kind of unpack this a little bit more. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Sexual immorality. So we're going to look at sexual immorality and greed. Spend some time on both of those. What is sexual immorality? Here's how I've kind of defined it. It's this kind of junk drawer term. You know, does everyone have a junk drawer in their house? And kind of everything goes into the junk drawer. So you might see, you know, a pack of gum. You might see a pen in there. And you might see something from like 10 years ago that you're never going to use again. Sexual immorality is this junk drawer term for sexual sin. Uh, and it includes everything. And, and I think it's any type of sexual relationship apart from your heterosexual spouse. And that's what I think sexual immorality is. And I read an article a few weeks ago that was addressing this Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner topic that most of you have probably heard about. But if you haven't, it's very mainstream, and I think it's important for us to, to, to think on. It's, it's the story of this famous male Olympic athlete that had a sexual reassignment surgery to become a woman. And the writer essentially pointed out the fact that while most of this seems bizarre to most Americans, like why would someone want to go and do that, and it seems kind of unequivocally disproportionate to most of our sinful leanings sexually, we all are or have been in Bruce Caitlyn Jenner's shoes in some way. Now, what do I mean by that? The fall has distorted Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner's view of his gender identity. The fall has distorted his view of who he is as a human being. And so he has, he has, he has kind of went to the, to the very edge here and he's actually changed who he is. He's changed his identity. Now, I'm going to say something right here and it's, it's probably at first going to maybe not offend you, but it's going to cause you to think. There's no one in this room who has not or will not experience the fall in your sexuality. You see, I think a lot of times we think that if we don't deal with the more drastic sexual sins, that the fall hasn't touched our sexuality. We're good to go. So while issues of homosexual marriage, transgenderism, or even sexual reassignment surgery may seem to be worse than your sexual sin or your sexual leanings, we're really all in the same boat. I'm no better than Bruce Jenner, no better than Caitlyn Jenner. I'm no better at all. So we all have and will experience some type of temptation to live outside of what the Bible describes as biblical in our sexuality. So the question for us becomes this. Have we remained or will we remain to live in the brokenness of that 
or will we be willing to bring it into the light? So that brokenness could be something as innocent as entertaining thoughts about being with someone that's not your spouse. It could be this gender identity confusion. It could be same-sex attraction. It could be homosexual relationships. It could be looking at pornography. It could be premarital sex or even a sexually broken relationship with your spouse that leaves you in despair. It could be any of those things, and the list goes on and on and on. And the way I see it is this, is that there's always a relationship involved with sexual immorality, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. So let's take pornography, for instance. In 2003, 12 years ago, 48% of families that were polled said that pornography was an issue in their house. 48%. That's just, this is 12 years ago. This is a very high statistic. I can imagine that it's even risen even higher now. So let's take this for instance. There's a relationship with someone that people entertain in their minds that is not theirs in the context of covenant marriage. And the reason pornography is such a prevailing problem is that we tell ourselves that no one else is involved in the relationship. And it's secret and no one's going to get hurt. And this is exactly what the enemy loves to use to entice and deceive us and to, and to take us away from what God has given us as a, as a biblically covenant relationship with him and with a spouse. And so my point in this is this. As long as these sin issues remain in the dark, Satan will continue to meddle and have his way in our hearts. A few years ago, I met a guy, and he kind of opened up to me about some things. He was a pastor, opened up to me about some things that, that he had been dealing with. And he made a statement that really struck me. And I, I want to I I give this to you, and you can take it or leave it, but I think it's a very provoking question to ask myself. He said this, the more quickly that we identify with where the fall, where sin has corrupted our sexuality, the more quickly the Lord will bring healing. See, our, our temptation is to think that these things will just disappear. Maybe you're not married yet, and your temptation is to think, okay, when I get married, these things will just disappear, it'll just go away. That doesn't happen. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're a Christian now, and you weren't a Christian before, and you think, oh, you know, I'm a Christian now, I'm good to go, I won't deal with these things anymore. But it's not the case. Our sin, especially our private sin, has to be brought into the light. And what Paul says in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 verse... 13. We're going to talk a bit about this in a minute, but I want to mention this now. Uh, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Okay, it's kind of like a no-brainer, right? So the light makes things visible. But then he goes on to say this, for anything that becomes visible is light. So the brokenness, no matter what it is, that your sexuality has kind of experienced, can become light for your journey in Christ. That's what he's saying here. There's hope. You don't have to live in the darkness you don't have to be out on your own in this. It doesn't matter what's happened in your story. Jesus can and will redeem that. I've not mentioned one sin this morning that the grace of God through Jesus cannot and will not cover. So what does it look like to walk in that redemption? Well, the Scriptures say that we need to put our, our trust in Jesus, confess that sin, and that's kind of what starts the, the, the train of redemption working in our lives. And that looks like us having that difficult and freeing conversation first with God. Because as David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. We have that conversation with the Father. We let the blood of Jesus run over our lives and wash us white as snow. And then if it's appropriate, we have that conversation with our spouse or maybe with our parents or with a counselor. And we begin to we begin to get some accountability in our private sexual lives because the enemy wants nothing more 
than to own us in this area. And we've got to bring it into the light. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, greed. You know, this is one of the more subtle sins that I think we deal with as Americans. In my, you know, eight or so years of being a pastor, I've never had someone come up to me and say, hey, pastor, I just really need you to help me. I'm dealing with greed. I'm a pretty greedy person. I've never had someone say that before. Yet, I think that, that American culture has embraced greed in such uh, an extent that we probably don't even acknowledge it as a sin anymore. Think back to what we said in week one about the Ephesian culture. Christianity, it, we read this and I think it was Acts 18 or 19. Christianity was hurting the economy of Ephesus. So there's this guy named Demetrius and he was an idol maker. This is what he did for a living. That was his trade. He made the best idols money could buy. And when these, when these converts began to, to come to Christ, they stopped buying idols. And so Demetrius gets frustrated. There's this riot. Everything was kind of going, everything was kind of going haywire because the Christians stopped buying the idols. I think it's possible the way that, that we think about our relationship with stuff could kind of lead to the same thing. So what if we began to ask God how we should spend our money. And, and then maybe God begins to show us that, that there's something in our own life that, that we've kind of been buying from the idol shop. We've been going to Demetrius kind of in the middle of the night saying, hey, can I have this? And maybe there's something in your life that is really idolatrous. And the, the funny thing about this is, is that I can't give you a, like, like with sexual immorality, I can't give you a list of prescriptive things that would qualify you as being a greedy person. Greed is all about a motive of the heart. Because Everything that God has given uh, to us, he's called us to be stewards. So the question I think we can ask ourselves is this, do I own stuff or does stuff, does it own me? Everything that you and I have belongs to God. And it's this beautiful picture of what it means to live in light of God as our Father and us as his children. And one of the things that's really helped me with this is understanding that God is not just interested in redeeming souls. According to Romans 8, God is going to redeem nouns. He's going to redeem everything. And for the Christian, greed is eradicated when the things of the earth find their rightful place in our life. So is it bad for me to want uh, to go play golf? Is it bad for me to have a new television or a new house or a new car? Not necessarily, but could it be? Maybe. Take, for instance, this. I, I'm, a, I'm an Apple guy. Uh, I like the iPhone. Some of you don't like the iPhone. Some of you do. That's fine. Uh, I was up for an upgrade last year, and so I got the, the iPhone 6 was coming out. Some of you have that, and it's kind of cool. But I decided that I wanted to get the old iPhone last year, even though the new iPhone was out. And the reason that I wanted to do that is because I know that I'm a greedy person. You see, I always want the newest technology that comes out, and I said, okay, I'm just going to test myself. If I buy this older phone, will I be tempted to try to find a way to get this newer phone? And sure enough, every time I see one of your iPhone 6s, it's like I'm coveting that phone. I'm like, man, I wish I could have that phone. That's a really cool phone. I wonder how I can get my hands on one of those phones. You see, it's, it's good to test your heart to see a kind of what provokes that greed, that covetousness in our hearts. The principle that Paul's getting at in Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, when he says this, Sexual immorality and greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. What he's getting at right there is this, is that provision for sin provokes more sin. Provision for sin provokes more sin. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's go, kind of go back to the sexual immorality thing here. When I was a youth pastor, I would, I would have lots of students 
come up to me, uh, especially when we talked about things like this, gender roles and identity and things like that. And I would get asked this question, I mean, uh, nearly every week. So, Pastor Ryan, what is sexual sin? And really what they were asking me is this. Can I make out with my girlfriend in the basement and feel okay about it? I mean, that's what they were asking me in that moment. What is sexual sin? And, and as an aside, I would say this. I would say 75% of the parents of the kids in the youth group that I pastored were completely naive to their kids, their children's sexual behaviors. And when things would come up and we would have conversations with the parents, they were kind of like a deer uh, in the headlights. I mean, they, they couldn't believe that that was going on. And one of the things that, I've, that Megan and I have kind of adopted from our, our history in youth ministry is that, that we want to be the people that kind of form our children's view about sexuality. Because if we're not the ones to form it, someone else is going to form it for them. And this can be a very daunting thing for parents. Like, I get it. I, it was easy doing it with other kids, you know. But when I think about my own kids, I think, man, this is going to be tough. I don't want to talk with my kids about that. But it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to have a safe place in your home where everything's on the table. When they hear something at school and they can come home and, hey, Dad, what does this mean? Even if it makes you blush, I would rather be the one in the ring talking with my kids about it than them hearing it from someone else or, even worse, Googling it, right? Um, because that will happen. So that's just kind of an aside, a tidbit there. So, so what they were asking is, how close can I get to the sexual line without sinning? How close can I, I want to toe the line, right? I want to get as close as I can because it looks so good. But I don't want to sin, but I just want to get as close as I can. And what Paul is saying is, guys, we're asking the wrong, you're asking the wrong question. We could do the same thing with greed. We could say, okay, we, we kind of ask God this, how much greed is safe for my soul? I mean, how much can I have in, 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 in being a good place? We could say the same thing. And Paul says, guys, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about it's getting, getting as close to the line as we can with sin, um, but rather it's about staying as far away from sin as possible. This is why Paul says in the NIV, not even a hint of these things in your life. Yet you and I, I know myself, I'm tempted to toe the line in these areas. And Paul's saying, this is, not, this is not safe. You're looking at it the wrong way. If you're playing with fire, you're going to get burned, right? I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a trite saying, but I think it's true. Uh, when we toe the line, here's what we're thinking. We're thinking that we're stronger in our flesh than the devil. And I've got really good news for you that seems like bad news with that comment, is that you're not stronger than the devil on your own. It's only Christ in you that conquers sin and Satan. And so when we try to toe that line and we disregard the word of God, we're saying, hey God, I got this. I'm going to do this on my own. The bottom line, as someone uh, mentioned to me this past week, is this. If you're trying to stay on diet, stay out of the candy store. Paul expects these first hearers to push back against this compromise. You see, because Ephesus was a global city, it was built on greed and sexual immorality. There were always people coming and going. And, he, and this to them would have been very radical, radical kind of statement. And so he even acknowledges their pushback before they say it. Notice they talk about crude joking and filthiness, foolish talk, those types of things. So Paul begins to address their thoughts. Okay, well, if I can't participate in those sins, maybe I can just talk about it. Maybe I can still entertain the thoughts in my mind. Paul says, no, it's not, that's not what's best for you. All of this sin is described as a deceitful trap. And we think because it's private, and we only know about it, that it doesn't hurt us to indulge just a little. The Scriptures teach us 
that if we're licentious in our approach towards sin, and what I mean by that is this, hey, there's grace in Jesus, so who cares what I do? He's, his blood's going to cover my sin. Then we're, then we're good to go. There's, there's an approach to God's grace that says that's what's appropriate. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not the way we should look at sin. In fact, if you look at sin that way, you don't understand, the, you don't understand our enemy because he's powerful. And so the, the antidote for our dilemma kind of here on this, this first point is this, is this attitude of thanksgiving. It's very interesting that Paul brings that up at the end of verse 5, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So what would he mean by that? Paul keeps bringing us back to this, that, that generosity and gratitude are the appropriate response to the gifts of God. Because, because what is sex and sexuality? It's a gift from God where we get to express intimacy with those that we love the most. It is a great gift of God's grace. And when that's distorted, uh, we don't experience it the way that God has intended. We, we have consequences that we have and will suffer because of that. Greed is the same way. Whenever we, whenever we, take, whenever we take a good thing and make it an ultimate, ultimate thing, uh, there's, there's consequences for that in our lives. So the attitude to our dilemma is this attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude as we enjoy the things that God has given to us. And that's opposed to this idea of entitlement. Let's keep rolling along here. The, so Ephesians 5, 5 through 6, the prior life of darkness. We won't spend quite as much time here, but uh, let's read this. For you uh, may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater. Now underline that, that's really important, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. When I read this, <laughs> I kind of think, and maybe you're tempted to think the thing, same thing. If you sin sexually or you're greedy, there's really no hope for you. I mean, the wrath of God is upon you. Well, if we were to hear it like that this morning, we would hear an incomplete version of what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to us. He wants to communicate the great danger of participating in sin as Christians. Because it's, it's telling of something else that's going on in our heart, that our hearts are malfunctioning, that we're not living as children of the light, but we're living as children of the darkness. So that word idolater that I told you to underline there, this is really the heart of the issue of what's going on in these passages we're looking at today. So what is idolatry? It's when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. Somebody really smart said that, not me. I couldn't find the quote. So that's not me. So it's when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. Sex? Good things. Stuff? Good. When is it that we cross the line of idolatry with God's good gifts? That's the question we've got to ask ourselves. We, we, we need to ask God to show us this. And so here's some potential indicators of what it might look like for you to be in idolater territory, if you will. You can ask yourself these questions. Does blank, so whatever it is for you, promise you a life of security and joy without God? So what, it's your money, it's your stuff, it's this relationship. Does it promise you a life of security and joy without God? Because it'll, it'll promise you things that it can never provide. Uh, the second thing would maybe be this. Does blank need to be protected by you? Are you always spending your time protecting this relationship with this idolatrous thing or person? Or are you unwilling to, to let God do what he wants to do with blank? Is that, is that kind of off limits for God to touch? You know, the scriptures say that he gives and takes away. Or you're like, uh-uh, you're not taking that away from me. That's maybe an indicator that you're in idolatry territory. 
Last thing is this, does blank require sacrifices to keep them happy? That sounds weird, doesn't it? But it's true. I mean, think about this. If I just work two more hours at work tonight, then my boss will be happy, and then, then I can get this extra money, and I can do X, Y, and Z. If I, if I just work a little more, then maybe I can have the bigger house that I need up the street. All the while, other things are suffering in your life that you are responsible for. So does it require you to sacrifice things to keep it happy? The Scripture is going to say, let no one deceive you with empty words. So what do you think Paul's talking about here when he's talking about deception? I think he's talking about this idea of undermining sin. That is, to say that, that whatever sin that, that someone's caught up in, just kind of rationalizing it to the point where you say, ah, that's not really sin. I mean, I'm not as bad as that person at least, right? So this, this deceit comes from not being willing to acknowledge sinful things in your life as sin. And when we do that, what we do is we kind of perpetuate this idea of just adding more sin to the sin that we have in our lives because it's not really that bad. The subtle shift in believing this idea of, of undermining our sin is that what we are actually believing is that we're inherently good people. And by thinking that we could inherently be good people, it's, it's kind of a refreshing thought, isn't it? It's like, ah, I'm a good person. You know, I, I do good things. That's, that's a refreshing thought. But the subtle shift in the deceit underneath it is this, is that when we think that we're inherently good people, we all together cut out the cross in our lives. We don't need that cross because we're good people. We don't need Jesus to make us good because we're good on our own. How do, how do we know if we're believing deceit from the enemy? What's this? Deceit is, is empty words. They're empty words if they don't lead to an empty cross and an empty grave. That's how you know if they're empty words and they're deceit from the enemy. Because Jesus will be faithful to always, you know, if he reveals sin to us by his spirit, he'll lead us straight to the cross because that's how we deal with sin is through the cross of Jesus upon his punishment for us instead of us bearing the punishment. He stands in our place. And that leads us kind of to the next phrase in this section right here. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I've never seen that on a bumper sticker. You know what I mean? Like, I haven't seen that anywhere. I haven't seen that painted up on anyone's room. But that's good news that the, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Why is that good news? Because apart from our sin being dealt with, we're not forgiven. We're not redeemed. We can't walk in freedom. Now, the thing is, is that we want to bypass the cross. And, and God says, hey, this is my provision for you right here. This is how I deal with sin. This is how you find freedom. Because the wrath of God has to come against sin. Now, notice even this, this phrase, the sons of disobedience. That's a very intriguing phrase to me. And what I think the scriptures are teaching us there is that whether you and I want to acknowledge it or not, everyone in the world, they're a son or a daughter of God. The question is, are they a found son or daughter of God? Or are they a lost son or daughter of God? Those that come to Jesus and submit their sin and confess their sin to him and on faith believe in his punishment on their behalf, those are sons of obedience now because Jesus was the only true son of obedience. So that's what, it's, that's what it looks like for God to, to, to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sin. That's how Jesus makes provision for even the, the subtle sins of sexual immorality and greed. We all have this innate fingerprint of God on us. And it's this beautiful thing whenever we come back to Jesus and we humble ourselves and acknowledge his provision for us. 
You need the cross more than you need lunch today. You need the cross more than anything else in your life because this is where we find freedom. This is where we find rest. This is where we find life is in Jesus. As we land this plane here, let's look at the last seven verses here. The present life of light. Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. Therefore, do not become partners with them. He's talking about the idolaters. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, as it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Every true believer feels an opposing tension in his conscience. Time and time again, I have met people that have come to Jesus. They've become Christians for the first time. And like a few weeks into this journey with Christ, they come to me and they're like, hey man, there's a big problem. I don't know what's going on here, but I'm still like tempted to sin, man. I don't know what's going on. And then the rest of us that have been Christians for a while, we're like, yeah, man, welcome to the club, right? Like, this is part of the game. And we think that somehow that by submitting our lives to Christ, that, that, that temptation is going to come off the table. And it simply doesn't. It, it seems to be the crucible which Jesus makes us more like, God makes us more like Jesus. He uses that, uses that temptation to kind of form us and to make us more into the image of Christ and to cleanse us more and more and more. And we ask questions like this, where is God? Is he really with me? Did my conversion really take Ephesians 5.8 says something very compelling. He says this, You were darkness, but now you are light. Notice that he's not just talking about the sin. He's talking about the identity of the believer. You were once darkness. I mean, it wasn't that you were just a... It wasn't just you had sin in your life. Like, you were dark. You were darkness. But now, you are light. A lot, a, a lot of times, people kind of think that that it's their participation in sin that makes them a sinner. But I think the truth is this. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's what Paul's saying here. We're darkness. And so sin comes out of that darkness. But when we come to Christ, we become light. So likewise, we're, we're not holy because of our holiness. But rather, we have holiness because we've been made holy. That's what flows out of the life of light is holiness. This is what... Jesus wants to do in our hearts is to conform us more into the image of himself. So there's a chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 7, and Paul is kind of going off on this thing where I see Paul more human than I've ever seen him before in the scriptures. When he says, he says this phrase, he's like, you know, I feel like I'm always not doing the things that I want to do, and I'm always doing the things that I don't want to do. And I'm like, finally, Paul seems just like me. I mean, I always, I always want to do one thing, and I do another thing. Have you ever, you ever felt like that before? You ever felt like you're doing the things? Nobody's raising their hand. I guess it's just me. There we go. A few people raising their hand. That's good. Just write on that note card that you have under your seat. It'll be good. Just kidding here. Well, Romans 7, uh, after that phrase, when Paul's talking in Romans 7, uh, there's a really interesting scripture that talks about the believer's relationship to sin and the believer's temptation to sin. So I'm going to read that for us. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. Paul says this, 
So I find it to be a law. A law. When I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says this temptation is like a law. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's an interesting phrase. Paul's a Christian when he's talking about this. He's saying that it's like, it's like this, this temptation for me to sin is like a law in my members, in my bones. I just feel this temptation. There's this law that's waging war within me. So, what is the law of sin doing within us as we're tempted to, to kind of go back to the dark life instead of walking in the darkness because we're, we're or, sorry, walking in light because we're light? What is this doing? It's waging war. It's wreaking havoc on your soul. Most of the time when someone becomes a Christian, I think life gets even more difficult. It's this strange thing that happens. This in, the enemy, the devil, begins to wreak havoc on our soul. So while there's peace with God in the believer... There is war always waging in our souls. The battles between Satan using the flesh and the lust of life on the one hand, and against the Holy Spirit on the other side with all the newness of creation that he's making in you and me. So is Satan ever successful in this war? Does he ever win the battle? Although Satan has and will bring us into condemnation periodically, he can never win fully in the believer's heart. You and I have experienced those times when we've messed up. We're like, God, I'm never going to do this again. And then tomorrow we go and do the same thing. It's because there's a war waging inside of our souls. And the enemy is the one that is using our flesh and the lust of the world to try to bring us into submission. But the Holy Spirit will not let the Christian go. He is committed to you. He is faithful to you. I mean, think about this. Noah, a righteous man. I mean, he's one of uh, a few people that was spared from the flood, right? I mean, pretty good dude. What does he do when he gets off the boat? Well, he gets drunk, and his son finds him naked in a tent, right? I mean, it's a crazy story. The same thing happens with Abraham. He's deceitful with his wife. Job, he curses God. And the list goes on and on and on for me and for you. This temptation, this, this war is going to wage in our soul. In fact, I would say this, that this war inside of our souls is actually a mark that you're a believer. Like if the war is not going on, maybe you should question the fact, you know, do I really submit my life to Christ or not? Because it seems like every Christian that I meet has a war waging inside their souls. It's to be expected. But thanks be to God, as Paul says, to him who's overcome it. So what are we to do when we're in this war between light and darkness. Romans 7.24 that we, we just read a few minutes ago says this. Paul says, Wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So what does he mean by wretched man? Well, he's humbled. He sees himself as he really is. He sees his sin. He's humbled by the war in his soul. So this means for us that we, we ought not try to act like it's not there. It's not one of those things that if you just shove it under the bed, it'll disappear. It just gets worse, right? So we ought not to act like it's there. We ought to be humbled because of sin's presence that's still in our life. 
humbled in such a way that we see our constant need of Jesus Christ to constantly cleanse and wash our sins. Second thing is this, let it teach you your need of Jesus. Romans 7, 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So it's Jesus in the spirit that speaks about him inside of us that empowers us to serve the law of God with our minds, to follow Jesus with all that we are. There's a lie that you and I are tempted to believe about this. And it becomes as we mature in Christ, or we apparently mature in Christ, I should say. And it's this, that we should wean ourselves off of, a, uh, of needing Jesus. It's like this idea that, man, if we could just wean ourselves off and need Jesus left, that's what spiritual maturity looks like. That, that we should actually need Jesus less the longer that we follow him because we should be becoming more righteous and obedient. This is exactly opposite, the, opposite of the truth because you and I realize that we need him more than we ever have as we mature in Christ. Your idols scream this. Here's what, here's what the enemy wants to deceive you into believing. that Your idols scream this. If you lose me, life won't be worth living. I'll make you miserable. But Jesus' response to us is this. You did fail me. You did mess up. But instead of me destroying you, I was destroyed for you. Instead of demanding you to sacrifice for me, I became a sacrifice for you. Now, dear children, go live as light because I've made you light. This is the truth of the gospel that you and I get to embrace as his kids. So there's this war waging inside of our souls. But thanks be to God who sent Jesus, who's overcome it for me and for you. Let's pray together. Father, I have to confess, it is not fun talking about sin that makes us so uncomfortable. But Father, because your word it prescribes that we speak of these things. We do it. Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends in this room that your Holy Spirit would apply these words to our hearts, that you would make us new, that you would, you would expose even the darkest crevices of our hearts with your grace as we boldly confess our sin because we have a faithful and just high priest that sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven who's always interceding for us. Give us that picture of you in our minds, Father. And spur us on to a new obedience, God. Make us holy because you're holy. Create within us a new heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us, Father. This is our prayer. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.